0: Live from Linguini's base of operations, today we will be diving into marketing inconveniences, featuring Jack Pierce from the Terror Tracks podcast. A challenge I'm considering doing, and a quote. So you're going to want to stay tuned for the dough. See you on the flip side. You are now listening to ninguini's dough today we're featuring jack pierce from the terror tracks podcast and he's an author um why don't you go
1: ahead and introduce yourself what's going on everybody i'm uh jack pierce i've uh written 10 books now my biggest selling one was under a morning star and the second biggest was uh the suicide diaries and, um, yeah, just check it out on Amazon. And I do a show called terror tracks where I teach you how to write horror novels. Now,
0: go check those out. Um,
1: what's well, just a quick summary of under the morning star. Under a morning star is about a cop that goes back to his hometown and he, uh, is trying to solve a mass murder case that happened. So it's almost like if you, um, the easiest comparison I can give you is if you mixed. Um, Final Fantasy 8 with Silent Hill
0: Alright um, Okay so what's your Favorite book you've written so far
1: Probably Under a Morning Star Really like Um, book. I mean it was the first and I think it was just the best one Not because it was the first but You know I think that some books I did later were um, better on a Technical scale like I think the Snow White Murders Was probably the best one on a technical Level but I think Under a Morning Star is just like it's so psychotic and Jacob's ladder that it just, it never was really duplicated in anything else ever did. So I always think that's the best one. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. Why do you like writing? I just, it's something to do, man. I mean, it's basically boiled down to, I wanted to make horror movies or horror video games, but I didn't have the money or the talent or the, you know, cast or the acting ability or the patience or any of that, but, uh, Uh you know, a pen and paper cost, you know, a buck versus a camera that costs like 400 back in, you know, before smartphones and all of that, where you could probably make a movie with an iPhone now, but, you know, you couldn't do that back then, so. And the imagination is limitless, or I guess your limit
0: is the imagination. What do you think you get inspired from writing?
1: It's just, it just sort of comes to you. It's kind of hard to, explain where certain ideas come from it's like you just be sitting there and all of a sudden you just have this random just insane idea pop in your head and you just sometimes they grow and sometimes they don't you know i did the i'm actually going to be writing another one soon i don't know what it's going to be called um it's basically going to be sort of like my take on the engine versus biocent thing from jurassic park but it's going to be in my universe where there's like it's not dinosaurs it's something different but it's going mm-hmm. to be like, you know, two companies that's like corporate espionage and stuff like that going on um, in the context of that world where one sky blue that runs the project dreamer from a book called dreamer. And the other one is um, this other corporation. I got to come up with this, trying to, you know, tap into and sabotage their thing so they can take over that project that they're doing. So or are taking over that space that they've inhabited.
0: Hopefully that goes well
1: um yeah i hope so but i mean the thing about writing books is like you know you can have a billion ideas but half of them won't end up on the shelf i mean yeah. you know you'll write something and you'll get about you know 50 to even 100 pages in and you're saying nah I just don't feel this you just scrap it and that's it mm-hmm. You're like this
0: isn't it moving on how often do you feel like you let's say you scrap the book and then you start on a new one how often does that process happen
1: more often than not, I mean, I mean, it really has. I mean, I have a lot of books that just never went anywhere. I had one where it, I thought it was a great idea, but I had no idea how to fill it out. Which was um, one I called the Last Ride. It's on Minds.com. I put it up as like a little ten-page short story, so it went somewhere, you know, just so it could be out there. Uh, where this old man is basically telling you his life story, and you know, the whole point was he thought that he was going to be put into a rocket ship and blasted off into space and let go in space as a euthanasia program. And mm-hmm. I just couldn't figure out a story to go around this simple concept of euthanasia in space. <laughs> and I just, I I tried my best, but it just never happened. Mm-hmm. Hey, I mean, you got a short story out of
0: it at least, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, I thought it was kind of neat. Like, uh, what really happened was, you know, the guy tells a story about how the government's out to get him and the euthanasia program and all of that. And then, you know, the next day it turns out that it was just, um, that he was an Alzheimer's patient and he just told the same story every day from some science fiction magazine he read. And I thought that was a pretty dark ending. I like my dark endings. I don't think any of my endings are happy. I don't think any, any book I've ever written ended well for everybody. I'll have to read one. I haven't quite got there
0: yet, but I'll have to read one. When you're writing a story, do you have like a mental roadblock um, within those first few sentences you write? Or is it more filling in the story kind of as you write, getting the details more accurate, being harder? If that made sense. I
1: think think the block, what you're asking is writer's block. Um, I think what really happens is some stories just happen. Like, you know, I'll just be able to crank out like 50 pages in a day. And some stories I can't crank out, you know, a paragraph.
0: Just Mm -hmm. certain
1: stories just don't work. And it's not that there is something wrong with the story. It's just that some stories just don't have that spark. They don't have that growth spurt that happens. And a lot of times, you know, those are the ones that fail. Like I said, like, you know, the last ride and, um, a few others that I've done, they just did not have that spark. I was going to do like a sequel sort of uh modern take on 1984 that didn't work either. And that got about 50 pages in. And I just kind of, quit and just it just didn't work out for me Mm -hmm. but it's really kind of random i mean you know it's not ever the first few sentences though it's always you know like 20 to 50 pages in the book and that's when it just sort of is you know the make or break with that i usually get like a good couple first chapters and then it's like you know usually i'll get stumped and that's it Mm -hmm. you'll you'll move on and
0: Do you plan, so when you're going about your day, do you plan specific times to write, or is it when you get that spark that you're talking about that you go ahead and write? It's usually when I get that spark. So you're an author, so I take it you read other people's uh, writing as well, Um, and does that help get you that spark as well?
1: I think so, in a bit. It's not really, um, I don't really get the spark from other people's writings, but I do read a lot, and... You know, anything from creepypasta to short stories to, you know, not as much with novels because it's just such a time sink. I'm already, I have so much going on in my real life that I don't have the time to actually sit down and read, you know, a Stephen King, the stand or something like that. I mean, the only way I'd ever listen to the, the only way I'd ever hear the entire thing is just, you know, to listen to an audible version. Mm -hmm. I can't sit down and read a thousand page novel. It's just never going to happen. My ADD is way too bad.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of time. But I
1: can, you know, yeah, I just can't do that. It's just no way. Mm-hmm. So just out of curiosity, how do you,
0: like, manage the story details? Because you, you write down, let's say, 20 to 50 pages, and just how do you get those details fine-tuned to make it into something longer?
1: I always thought of it as sort of each chapter is like a short story in and of itself, and each chapter after that is, like a sequel to that, like what happens next sort of thing. Um, since I write my books more like you would write a TV show or a um, movie, it's more like, instead of thinking, you know, how do I make this longer? It's like, you know, think about when you're watching a, a TV show or a movie, you have your opening scene where you introduce the characters or whatever you do in the first opening scene of whatever your movie's going to be. And then after that scene is over, you know, you always leave a scene on what happened next like the question not saying at the end of a saying ending each one with a question but you know you you leave it in your own mind of what happened after that and then you write that story and then what happened after that it just you do that on and on and on until it's finally like all right this story's done you know mm-hmm. it's like you basically are writing instead of thinking of i need to write 400 pages you should be thinking more like i need to write 50 short stories that all or sequels to each other. Mm-hmm. That's the
0: first chapter and they keep a focus on like those characters that you write about as well. Yeah. How about the revision process because I'm sure that's one of the major factors into writing your books and how does that look like for you?
1: The editing process is the asshole <laughs> publishing. <laughs> oh man. I just I hate editing. It's the worst thing on earth. If I had the money, I would pay someone a million dollars to never have to edit again. I hate editing. It is terrible. Mm-hmm. And you have it to is, do it, sadly. Just, oh my God. It's I mean, I know that you do audio editing, so I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about, where it's like, you know, you listen to the thing, and it's like, oh, there's a screw up here, and then you have to cut it out and make sure it fits well, and, you know, splice these two things together to make it sound natural, and then it's just on and on, and noise, it's basically the same thing with writing, but with words instead of audio. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's even worse because I have to listen. I listen to the, I basically put the text into a text-to-speech reader and it reads it to me like an audio book and I'll listen to it. And if I hear something that doesn't sound smooth, then I have to stop the tape and, you know, rewrite that sentence and then start the tape again and listen to the sentence and on and on and on for 400 pages. It's just I hate it. It's a time consuming. Yeah. You know, by the end of the book, you hate your book. Like I, I I hate every single book I've written. I hate the newest book I put out two days ago. So bad that I just, I don't even want to market it. I don't even want to look at it ever again. It was, you know, that's just how you feel about a book after you've looked at it so much at a critical level where you're just every single word has to fit. And it's just a perfectionism. And it just like you know, the editing part of the process is the part that makes you say, "You know what? I don't want to be an author anymore. I want to quit. I want to do something else. <laughs> you know, I'd rather shovel elephant crap than do this. Mm-hmm. You okay. know, at least with that, you know, I don't have to stop every second and check each turd in the pile. I mean, just, just toss God, it in. It's, just, it's horrible.
0: <laughs> it's definitely a tough process and you that the other hard part is knowing that you have to release it because otherwise you'll just throw it in the dumps if you don't after listening to it a thousand times and
1: yeah i mean that's how i feel about k is way, is i just i mean i just kind of forced it out because if i didn't force it out it was never going to come out and it was 403 pages that it was sort of like I, I fell to the sunk cost fallacy but i don't think it's anywhere near as good as my other stuff and you know, I'm willing to admit that I've written some turds that I think are turds anyway, but some people might like them mm-hmm. um, because you never know what the audience is going to like, which is the hardest thing about being an author is you always think that if I write this type of book with this type of plot, with these ca- type of characters, with the structure, with all this stuff, you know, the, the people are going to love it. Mm-hmm. You can write you could literally take a famous book like Harry Potter and just change the names and nothing else. And someone would probably hate your book. That's Even true. if they knew nothing about Harry Potter, they might, they probably would still hate your book anyway. Mm-hmm.
0: And leave a one star review. saying
1: It's completely random. I mean, you have no, I thought the suicide diaries diary, the suicide diaries was my worst book, period. I hated that book. Mm-hmm. And it became my second bestseller. <laughs> I mean, you know, like come the books on. I love didn't do that well. Like I love Dreamer and I love the Snow White murders. I think they're my best books, and nobody cared.
0: Hmm. I I don't understand why that's the case. It just people. I guess the
1: audience chooses. So. Um, I mean, you just can't understand the audience. You never can. I mean, if if you really, if any author could understand the audience, then you know there'll be more famous works by J.K. Rowling than Harry Potter. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because JK Rowling's written so many books that are not Harry Potter, but you've never heard of any of them. I mean, true. you know what yeah. I mean? She, she caught fire with one book and then made a series out of it, but she's written so much other stuff that if she knew how to make another Harry Potter, something as famous as that, she would have. She
0: would have done it in but an she instant. She doesn't know.
1: Nobody knows. At least
0: she's built up that audience That's
1: somewhat, you got the first thousand followers, I guess. Oh, that's so difficult too. just getting a thousand followers. I mean, that's just, you know, that's a nightmare. And honestly, it never gets easier when it comes to marketing your book. I don't care how many you've sold. It's pulling teeth to get every single sale. Mm-hmm. Especially knowing. You never cause... get very, you never get popular enough unless you're Stephen King. Even he probably has issues. You never get popular enough where you have to stop marketing. And the way I've explained it to people, because people have this notion that I'm going to become a famous author and never have to do this advertising stuff again. And I'm like, Coke and Pepsi both advertise on the Super Bowl, of all things. That's mm-hmm. a very expensive ad. You know, Coke and Pepsi, you know, everyone, no one, there's no one on earth that doesn't know what Coke or Pepsi is, that they exist in probably every flavor they come in but they still have to advertise
0: and they have advertising literally everywhere. What type of environment do you ride in? Like, is it in a studio office or do you prefer just writing when the idea comes to you?
1: I have a desktop PC at the office and I have one at the house. Oh, okay. Both houses have a 50 inch TV, which they're both plugged into. So I'm always working with a big giant screen and I have a wireless keyboard and a recliner that I sit in anytime I write something, you know, I don't have any other chairs in the house. I don't have office chairs except for one in the front office when I'm working on something, but the rest of the time I'm always in a recliner. So, I mean, I have them all over the place. I always have to have one around. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if it's a Southern thing. I don't know if it's, uh, just a man thing, but I just, there's no seat. That's like a recliner. I'm in one right now. Oh, look at that. <laughs> so, <laughs> Gotta yeah, be comfortable so a recliner, you a, you know, recliner, a nice, you know, gaming PC, a giant TV, you know, as the monitor, that's how I write. All part of a complete collection. Uh, so I know the revision was,
0: is your least favorite part of writing a story. Um, what are your other parts that kind of, or you don't like doing when it comes to writing?
1: The marketing part is a pretty big headache because oh, you sure. always have to make it your life. I mean, you really do. Mm-hmm. Like it's almost, see back in the day, if you'll let me, you know, digress for a second about a different type of marketing, Yeah, you know, which you're probably more familiar with, which is like YouTube and podcasting. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with books, but it's a lot harder because, you know, with podcast, YouTube, you know, music, anything, audio or video, it's a lot more of a passive medium where you could, you know, listen in the background. And I know that the audiobooks exist. That's fine. But you know, how many people listen to audiobooks versus listen to, you know, music, which is a lot more passive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I went through this phase when I was on YouTube for many years, because I've been on YouTube since 2008 and I've had various levels of success on YouTube. And, you know, I've had various ups and downs with it and all sorts of, different uh phases of my youtube career you know now i've just started another venture of course because i just can't stop for some reason mm-hmm. but the point is you know it used to be almost be like this unspoken rule that you shouldn't ever you know say like comment subscribe or ask someone to you know donate to your patreon or you know if you're making money you're a sellout or you're a shell or you have to you know, basically struggle and, you know, you should get a real job. And, you know, after a while, you're like, wait a minute, you know, I paid, you know, like you have that microphone, that microphone that you use is 400 bucks. I paid $400 mm-hmm. for this microphone, you know, whatever I paid for this microphone stand, you know, and this desk and this computer that I have to, you know, I have to pay for the editing software, you know, if you're using the Do- Adobe Premiere or You have all this investment, but you're not supposed to make anything back from it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And you work your butt off for it. And it's. Yeah. And I mean, I just felt I finally got to the point of, you know what? If someone can't listen to me say, you know, the single words like comment, subscribe, donate to Patreon and listen to like, you know, a 22nd bit, Mm -hmm. you know, so that they can get more content that they want from me for free. Then I just don't need them.
0: Yeah. I see that. And a lot of, and if you don't mention it, the people that would support you won't even remember to. So even though it's kind of, and (laughs) even though it's kind of like a weird thing to say, I guess people don't like it, it does help, even if we don't like to admit it does.
1: I mean, you just, you kind of have to. And it's just one of those things, you know, I've been kind of slacking on that with the podcast, even though I've kind of gotten overboard with some of the more recent episodes. Because I have so much stuff going on, you know, like I have, you know, all these different social media sites and all these different ways to donate and all these different ways of this, that, and the other, you have to tell them about everything. So what I've done to make it easier is I've made like a link tree sort of thing where it has like, you know, I have a link tree for all the stuff to support the show. And then I have one where you can follow me on these different social media sites now uh use my website like terrortracks.com with you know a different subdomain more or less that way instead of having to say donate on patreon do this and like show five different ways to support the show and show like 10 different social media sites and explain everything about each social media site i would just say you know go to this site to support the show go to this site to follow the show and then you're done you know people nice and you simple you know they're gonna It's going to pass them by if you try to rattle off, you know, I do this on Instagram, I do this on Minds, I do this on Twitter, on Facebook, and, you know, Pinterest, and, you know, whatever else is out there. And I'm on YouTube, and if you want to watch this version of that, and it's just, there's one guy that does that, and I can see how it irritates people, because he doesn't organize it in a nice little bow that's a simple way to put it, which is Phil, not Filthy Frank, Philip DeFranco, getting my Mm -hmm. Franks fixed up. He does that where he'll spend like five minutes just shilling all this different stuff. And I'm just like, oh my God, Phil, just give me a link and I'll go look and see if I want to look at any of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure he, I mean, he's a millionaire. I get it, but I would personally feel bad if I sat there and spent like five minutes of just, you know, selling you a car. (laughs) On every single video, it just wouldn't feel right, you know, I these gets like, old. you know, if I heard that from someone else, like on a podcast, I would just probably wouldn't listen, okay. Well, what are your favorite steps in the writing process? Honestly, I don't know what it is. I don't even think I like writing anymore. <laughs> um, I loved it when I first started, and it's sort of like hard to explain. You know, like you have you know you have your day job, you know mm-hmm. and you you liked it at first, you thought it was all right, maybe you didn't, but You know, you'll get this day job that is good enough and it pays enough and, you know, you do well enough and you get comfortable with it. And eventually it just sort of becomes like a routine versus, you know, a passion becomes a routine. It's like, oh, well, I got this idea. I'm going to write this stuff down and, you know, here's another book. And I don't think I've ever celebrated or felt like, you know, some type of joy or elation or euphoria from releasing a book. It was almost always you know, thank God that's over. Well, I got to write another one because that one's going to flop. Yep. And then you just go and write another one. The process that's fun. It can be, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. like, you know, nine books again, it was, but it's just what I am at this point, I guess is the way to put it. It's just, you know, it's not something that brings me incredible joy or, you know, uh, pain either. It's just, it's what I do. Mm -hmm. this is part of who i am i'm a writer i write that's how i feel about it at this point how long has been your longest gap without writing
0: out of curiosity i think probably six months six months were you by the time you started writing again were you like all refreshed and ready to not really (laughs) not really (laughs) it just kind of happened naturally
1: not really no i think um under a morning star I do start damn near killed me. I mean, it was rough. You know, that was a really hard one to start with because I wanted to write the best horror novel of all time. I wanted to write something that was perfect. That was, you know, oh, I thought yeah. that Stephen King and all these people, they, you know, they put out these books and they're so perfect and there's nothing wrong with them. And that's how you sell a book is it has to be, you know, crystal clear, perfect, nothing wrong with it at all. And I, just pulled my hair out and I just hated writing that book and I've edited it even after release. I have revised that thing oh my probably goodness. 10 times after release when Grammarly would get an update and they'd be like, oh, we found more problems now and I would literally go and edit all of the books again. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I don't know if I'm OCD, but it's like, you know, I I want the perfect product and I know that there's no way I'm ever going to have the perfect product and I'm sure that you know, the reader does not see this stuff, but to me, it's like the easiest review to avoid is, you know, this book needs an editor. Mm-hmm. That's the easiest one to avoid. And reviews are so difficult to get. They're almost impossible to get. They really are. they I mean, think about the last time you bought something on Amazon and then went and reviewed it on Amazon.
0: Especially if it was a good product because usually good ones. You
1: just kind of are like, these are good. And then move on. Yeah. I mean, that's how it is with books. It's like, it's just a nightmare to get a review. So, and then Amazon also puts up these roadblocks where it's like, well, you have to, you know, have $50 on your account and you have to have this type of account. And you've had to have the account for this amount of time and just all these roadblocks where it's like someone that just bought your book and that's it. And just started their Amazon account. Can't review it, you know? Mm -hmm. So You know, and then what they'll do is Amazon will be like, if you review too many products, whether it's books or anything, you review a certain amount of products in a certain amount of time, and they don't tell you this, they'll ban your, uh, reviewing privilege and they'll take all your reviews down. So I've had it where I had, I think Under Morning Morningstar at its peak had like over a hundred reviews. Now it's down to like 16. Oh my goodness. That's, that's kind of messed up Amazon. Yeah. I mean. That's why I used to think that like, if you see a book and has a lot of reviews, it must be a famous, you know, book that got a lot of reviews. And I'm thinking, then I realized later down the road, you know, a book that has no reviews probably hasn't sold anything, but if they have at least three or four, I think that you can have a decent bet that they've at least sold a thousand copies. Mm -hmm. And I see some of these people that have like, you know, a thousand reviews on their book and I've never heard of them. And it makes me kind of question if they went to like some type of website where you can, you know, buy reviewers and, you know, Amazon eventually finds that out. And they always do because they're very anal about reviews and -hmm. they'll end up banning your account. There goes your book and there goes all that money you spent to buy fake reviews. You really can't buy fake reviews. They used to be able to do that on Fiverr, I think, but they made it like illegal. And I think it's actually illegal to buy fake reviews on Amazon. It's like, I forgot what it was, a like consumer fraud or something. You get in trouble with the uh I think it's the FTC or something if you mm-hmm. ever bought like, you know, fake testimonials on something. So, I mean, do you really want to get hit with all these fines and everything or, you know, lose all that stuff or do you want to just, you know, have to eat the bullet that the fact that you're not gonna uh have that many reviews and, you know, I don't think, you know, I think reviews, you know, they mean a little bit to people, but I think most of the time, if, you know, your cover's good, your title's good, and the description sounds interesting, they'll pick it up, because I've had books with no reviews that have done better than books with 10 reviews in certain um, seasons. It's kind of crazy, so it's really just random. Like, you can't, I don't think there's any way to predict what book's gonna sell, and there's no method you can use to figure out, you know, what would make a book sell or sell better. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of luck no matter what. It's sort of like, you know, when you're doing YouTube and everything, you can say, well, I have this perfect uh, interview that I'm going to set up, which I saw one last night with a different podcast, which was a guy that I don't remember the name of the podcast, unfortunately. But he was reviewing the voice actor that did uh, Leon Kennedy Mm -hmm. for the new Resident Evil 2 remake. And I was thinking, well, you know, this guy's super famous and that, you know, game sold two or three million copies. You know, this will be something that probably had to get, you know, a decent amount of views and only got like 200 views. Oh, wow. That's, you know, and I'm just like, that. that's nuts. It's just like, what if you interviewed Trump and you only got like a hundred views? I mean, how would that feel? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? You get these super famous yeah. people that everyone knows or, you know, and you just get them on your show and YouTube's just like, nah, we're just not going to let you have, it. and that's how Amazon is. It's like. You know, if you went to uh, Amazon right now and typed in under a morning star, you would have to put my um, author name, too, in the search for it to pop up. And I'm thinking to myself, but none of the results are under a morning star. You know, there's no other book called this. So why is it, you know, that extra step to see my book that's called that? So, I mean, even Amazon, you know, their search algorithm is screwing you. So it's basically luck. I mean, it's, you know... I feel like advertising on Amazon, especially, and I did talk about this in a recent episode that's not come out yet. you mm-hmm. uh, know comes out and not to not it, one came out yesterday. it's not the ninth. it's gonna be on the sixteenth. It's part eight where I talked about how to sell more copies. and what happens is, damn train of thought, oh yeah, I feel like Amazon ads are basically like gambling at this point. Mm-hmm. Facebook. Twitter, Reddit, you know, all of these social media sites, absolutely worthless for, you know, selling a book. In my opinion, there was a guy and this is a little bit of a, you know, off the trail for a second, but it does have a point. There was a boxer and I don't remember who it was. It wasn't like George Foreman or anybody like that, but it was a, you know, relatively well-known boxer Mm -hmm. and he had, I think it was 1.5 million followers on Twitter. And he went and wrote some book about boxing. I don't know if it was his career or how to box or something. He wrote something about boxing. So you have a boxer that has 1.5 million followers on a, you know, a Twitter profile. That's all about boxing. And he wrote a book about boxing and he promoted it with just his Twitter, figuring that, you know, it's all lined up. He sold 300 copies. Oh my goodness. That's (laughs) <laughs> you <laughs> know what point? I mean? So at that point I was like, social media is worthless. At least for books, it is it is absolutely just nothing. There's no need in this because I finally came to realize you don't buy books on Twitter, you buy books on Amazon.
0: Mm-hmm. That's true. Especially since cause they have Audible as well. Um Yeah, that's true. Out of a curiosity for another marketing like struggle you might have is because i noticed when i searched your name in google it popped up with some other person with the same name uh how does that make it harder for you
1: i have the unfortunate gift of being named i don't know if after but i was named after apparently a makeup artist that did frankenstein's makeup back in the 30s yeah if you look for me you see that and i'm like well Not a hundred and something, so, you know, it's just unfortunate, but it's just, it's difficult. Even if I was the only Jack Pierce in the world, there would be, you know, some type of struggle with that because it's just, you know, you can't really figure out what the machine wants and how to feed it. You know what I mean? And -hmm. the reason they do that, the reason they make it so obscure with how the system works and how you could. Succeed within the YouTube system, the Google system, the Amazon system, whatever search engine. The reason that they make it so difficult to succeed is because they know that you will throw more money at it to try and succeed. Wow, they know that's... that you will test all these different theories, trying to see which one of these is going to work. And to test it, it costs money kind of like gambling. Yeah, it's really advertising is gambling, it really is, especially you know, cost per click is absolutely gambling. And that's what it was with Amazon, where the preview for part eight of terror tracks is the fact that let's say, you know, you're like, okay, well, all this social media doesn't work. So I'm just going to go and do some Amazon ads. Well, that's when you start gambling and playing roulette, because what ends up happening is you'll say, okay, I want my book to be the top, you know, result or one of the top results of horror. Like, you know, you type in, Pour into the search bar and, you know, you'll, you'll pop up with your book, you know, in the Kindle section mm-hmm. along with others, of course, you know, that it's not going to be just you, but you know, you'll have your roll of the dice for that.
0: They won't have to just browse through a thousand pages just to find it.
1: Yeah. So you'll be at the top of the search, you know, a certain amount of the time, you know, like randomly, I guess. So to be at the top of the search though, you had to pay like a dollar per click though. Mhm. Your book is $10. You make 6 or $7 from the book. You're gambling hoping that out of the out of every 6 clicks you get a purchase, which you probably won't. <laughs> so <No. laughs> I, It really is gambling. That's gambling to me is I'm throwing money at something hoping that I get a return and I usually don't. I have
0: a question so if someone were to keep clicking they opened up that ad multiple times. Does it charge you for every yeah. dollar? It does. Yep. Oh, that is scary. And that's
1: why I stopped doing it. Mm-hmm. You're like, I got to find
0: different ways to market this, and with books, that is extremely hard because it just takes so much time to read books that a lot of people don't even
1: bother. It's I guess. It's difficult because it's difficult because there's so many options now. Because before. You know, KDP and Ingram Spark and all of that where you could do it by yourself. You know, the you have publishers who had all that money behind them, had all these, you know, backroom deals with all these different stores. They had, you know, connections. They were the ones that filtered out the good from the bad books. There was, you know, if a book came up from Penguin Random House or, you know, whoever, the publisher would be like, you know, these big publishers, you could kind of, you know, almost guarantee the book would at least be good you know you wouldn't Mm -hmm. think it would be horrible you know because they wouldn't get through the actual traditional publishing process which is a nightmare but you know you would think they had it like a filter but now it's sort of like youtube you know you're competing with millions of other books you know trying to stand out and no one really cares about the publisher anymore i mean and traditional publishers are kind of worthless now they really are in my opinion they are Mm -hmm. and anyone that says they're not is you know they have a problem. Apparently there's something wrong with you. If you think that you should go through a traditional publisher at this point, Mm -hmm. I mean, um, it's sort of like if you were, and it's not like the music industry, you know, I mean, you could do independent now if you have the money to put behind it, but a traditional publisher really at this point is just a money leeching middleman. They don't do anything for your marketing. They don't do anything for you besides give you an editor and a cover designer. And You know, there's no guarantee that your book is going to sell because you still have to market your book. And now you're making 8 to 12% on the, you know, cover price of it versus 70% you can make on, you know, your own independently. So it boils down to, do you want to have to go through all the headache and years of getting an agent and then having the agent field to these different people and then having to deal with, you know, they want to make all these changes to your book that could be better or worse to the story. And they interfere and they just get in the way and all of that. And you only get eight to 12% and you have to, you know, they don't give you money to market it either. You have to use your own money. So at this point, I'm just thinking to myself, what's the point of a traditional publisher if they do nothing for you except forgive you, you know, some random Indian on Fiverr that'll make you a cover, which you could pay for yourself for five to $10. I know that's, that's terrible Mm -hmm. to say that, but I've done it before, at least in the early stages I did Yeah. now I work with a girl from uh, England that does it. And I pay her a decent wage, but when you're first starting out, you don't know, you know what you're doing so you can field it with that or, you know, try with that sort of thing. But the point is there's really no reason for a traditional publisher to exist at this point. They're just not, I mean, you can pay an editor. You know, Editors mm-hmm. are expensive, but if you really think about it, is it worth going through all the headache to get their editor that's probably overworked and that's probably isn't really paying that much attention to your book to begin with? Yeah, it kind of sounds like
0: the publishers are just kind of a scam. I, d- I didn't know that much about publishers, so I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, that's a lot of sneaky things they do, and there's no guarantee your book's even going to do well, especially now because the internet.
1: The problem is the publishers used to be the only way to get your book out there, unless you were, you know, self-publishing, which I don't know how they did it before KDP. So, I mean, you can look it up yourself. I'm not sure. But I'm sure it was a whole lot harder to do it before then. So everyone thought that the only way to get out there is the traditional publisher, which it pretty much was. It's sort of like when you look at these artists, you know, that do like, you know, music. It used to be the only way that you could get on the radio or get out there, you know, in public is to go through some type of, you know, record company Mm -hmm. and the record company would just screw you left and right. I mean, they were just as bad as the publishers where, you know, let's say, um, I don't know off the top of my head. I remember winger had this problem. If you, if you know that band, I'm not sure if you ever listened to them, but you know, they would sell a CD for, I guess, 10, 15 bucks. They get 50 cents per CD. Is that a relatively good return? No, I okay, mean, sorry, 15 bucks for the CD and they get 50 cents per CD sold. Oh yeah. That's bad. And on top of that, their money, they, they have to pay the record company, you know, from their own royalties for the recording cost. You know, it's like the record company doesn't even foot the bill for the producer or the recording time or studio time. None of it. So all it really was, was the record company was there to leech off of too, because there was no, you had no, how are you going to get it out there? Otherwise? Mm -hmm. They're the ones who distributed the CDs and had the deals with the factories and stuff, but you know, did some of the marketing, I guess, but all of it came out of your end. It didn't come out of their end at all. They have this, uh, I don't know if you, you could probably look it up. I can't remember what it's called, but there was this documentary I watched and I'm not a big rap fan, but it was really interesting to see how they do it. Yeah. And what they would do is they would take these young, uh, young men from low income areas. And what they would do is, you know, if they had any amount of rapping talent, they'd sign them to these horrible deals where they would get nothing. And they're basically, you know, the guy would get out there and he'd sell, you know, at most like half a million copies and they end up owning the record company like a million bucks or something, you know, and he was just massively in debt. And it would so all be on a contract, I imagine. Getting these poor people that didn't read their contracts and thought this is their way out of that low income area and they just screwed them. And now they're, you know, in debt for more than a house and, that's it you know that's how a lot of those rappers are you know a lot of those rappers you know they don't have these fancy houses and cars and all that stuff that's all rented for the music video which comes out of their end of course i never even knew how messed
0: up those could those industries were just for um i mean competition and just kind of how that was how they play it kind of curious how do you you said you hire someone now from england that does your cover art yeah so when a Couple years back, my language arts teacher, she said, "Do judge a book by its cover." I'm paraphrasing. Do judge a book by its cover. The author puts a lot of work into what you see. Uh, what What would be your thoughts on that?
1: We everyone judges a book by its cover. I don't care what anyone says. You do. I mean, you judge everything by its by its appearance, at least up front. You know, if you think about it, it's like the same with women. It's the same with movies. You know, titles and covers and stuff of like a you know the front of a DVD and. You know all of that you know it's like you know it's sort of like you know think about thumbnails like you know you have to have the fancy thumbnail for someone to click on your video you know they're judging your video by the thumbnail that you put on it you mm-hmm. know i mean people do judge a book by its cover it doesn't matter you could have the worst book on earth but if you have a good title and a good cover and a blurb that makes you know it just moves mountains it will sell like hotcakes and it'll probably get horrible reviews, but the thing sold. You got the profit. <laughs> you can market it. Like think about the pet rock that you can market a rock. And it was like one of the best selling toys of all time. I wish I could have bought that. <laughs> yeah. Even though
0: it's literally just a rock. Okay. I guess going back to the whole book process, um, I guess when you don't reach your goals for a book, how does that make you feel? Or how does it affect you?
1: I don't have goals for my books at all. You don't? Okay, so you just kind of... don't because once again, you don't know what the audience is going to want, and I feel like books are not... I mean, they're products, of course, to be sold, but I feel like they're not really like video games or movies where you have a box office, you know, sort of thing that you're trying to say, you know, like a movie comes out, and here's the box office draw and all of that stuff. I don't think books really work like that, because... I think books are a lot more evergreen, unless you're doing like a topical thing, like, you know, a political book or, you know, some type of, you know, science thing or something like that, where it's a lot more topical. Mm -hmm. Like if I wrote a book about COVID, you know, that would be, that would have a window of like, you know, a couple years of whenever this is going to be over, if it's ever over, you know, I have that window that this book is relevant and sellable. But for me, since I'm a fiction author, it really doesn't have one. And mm-hmm. what I've noticed was the Suicide Diaries did not move mountains at all. Like, when it first came out, it didn't sell nothing, and, you know, a lot of I think Under Morning Star was came out and it hit the charts at number one in October, which was six months after it came out. So, maybe six months. So it came out in June and then it blew up in October, whatever the amount of time between those two is. Mm-hmm. But the point is, you never know when a book is going to blow up. It's almost like you know, a landmine, you put them out there and you hope someone steps on the thing. And that's what happens with some of them. Some of them just never get found. And, you know, you can put all the money and, you know, all the work you can into these things and some just don't work. I thought the Suicide Diaries wasn't going to go anywhere. And next thing you know, one day it sold, you know, 800 (laughs) copies during the Halloween season. I think it was Halloween 2019. And, you know, it just sold 800 copies in a week and went to number one and, It's like well, (laughs) I I don't mind. You know, it just happens. You know, you just never know. It's like me, like certain books. You you'll put them out and you'll think, oh, this is going to be my big one, and then it doesn't sell nothing. And then a year later, you look back and like, wait a minute, this thing has like ten reviews. Where'd that come from? (laughs) And you know, you look at all your numbers. You're like, well, you know, I mean, that happened. Just sometimes, like you know, it just gets uh, gets a miracle that. It happens the Holy Ghost just grabs it and says, This is great. And then it explodes. And you just never know. It's sort of like, you know, I've always thought about, you know, the books as more like planting seeds and hoping the tree grows versus trying to, you know, make an explosive thing out of the gate. Because me can do that. And that'd be great if I could just throw out a book and get, you know, 100,000 copies sold and get rich. But you just mm-hmm. can't unless your name is Stephen King or J.K. Rowling. And he, as I said, even with her, you know, she had books that you know did okay, but nowhere near Harry Potter, which you know made her a billionaire. Mm-hmm. And you know, RL Stein has been doing the same thing where he's written. A, I don't know when he started or if it's a new thing or an old thing or what, but you know, he's the one that did Goosebumps for you know all those years. And I, I don't know if he still does it or not, but he wrote all the Goosebumps books and he wrote another series, which was like, I don't know if it's a series or just a book, but it's called fear Street, I think. Mm -hmm. And that's like a more adult, you know, sort of novel or series that he's working on now. But I guarantee you fear street is never going to sell as much as goosebumps, even though it's RL Stein, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm sure that Stephen King has his, you know, handful of books, you know, like five to 10 books out of the 60, the 60 novels he's written or whatever that are like his sellers. And most people just sort of pass over the rest of the stuff. You know, mm-hmm. like, uh, off the top of my head, I'm just going to say that, you know, probably his best-selling one right now would probably be The Stand or It or um, maybe The Shining, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the main ones that you still hear horror fans talking about is probably what's selling, but, you know, you never hear anyone talk about, like, the Tommy Knockers or the Duma Key or, you know, uh, Christine or Maximum Overdrive. You never hear anyone talk about any of those. So. Stephen King makes $10 million a year off book royalties alone from what I heard. And he's worth over $400 million, I think, which is just insane. Um, but I mean, he also gets royalties from movies and TV shows and all sorts of, you know, merchandise that he's made and, you know, all sorts of stuff. So he's
0: Mm -hmm. He's uh, making money.
1: I think most of an author's money, honestly, probably doesn't come from book sales it probably comes from the merchandise. Like, if you think about it, like all the Harry Potter posters, the video games, the movies, you know, the movies that J.K. Rowling, you know, that they made of those things, you know, all the toys, all the, you know, all the lunch boxes with Harry Potter on it, the little notebooks with on, him on it. I think that's where the vast majority of an author's money comes from. And the same thing for, you know, musicians that most of it comes from merchandise, where it's all that extra stuff that's, you know, just accessories to things that that's where they make the money. I think, I mean, cause if you think about it, I don't know, I don't have a calculator in front of me, but 12%, uh, which is the highest you'll ever get from a traditional published author. And mm-hmm. that's from Brandon Sanderson who wrote that Mistborn series. He says that 12% is the top, you know, if that's your that. book is 20 bucks, what's 12% of 20 bucks? You know, it's what, like, I can't think off the top of my head. Not no. much, not much, maybe 50 cents or a buck, mm-hmm. you know? You know, you sell a million copies of it. That's not going to make you a billionaire.
0: No, I guess by becoming the person selling the royalties, you become the middleman.
1: After yeah, going through middlemen
0: to publish.
1: And I think that uh, one thing that one band I always go back to that um, kind of you know embodies the whole you know selling the main art is not how you really make the money is Kiss. You know, if you think about Kiss, but uh, Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons both were. You know, almost half a billion dollars, but not almost all of the records only sold like 1 million copies per record. They were never, you know, diamond certified, like the Eagles or Bon Jovi or anything, mm-hmm. but, you know, everyone had a kiss lunchbox. Everyone had the action figures or the, you know, the DVDs, the movies, just, you know, everything had kiss on it when they were big and that's how they made the money and still make their money. They have over 3000 pieces of merchandise that are related to kiss all the way from coffins to condoms, which is actually true. <laughs> wow. You know, you can get a kiss condom. You can get a kiss coffin. What else do you need? And <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's just the nature of the beast is I, I've always thought you should never close off an Avenue to make money. You know, as long as you're, you know, being, you're not hurting anyone, you know, it's sort of like where people, I think it was some interviewer was getting really snooty with Paul Stanley from kiss and asked him, you know, are you ever going to make a kiss toaster? And he says, well, if people will buy it, why not? Mhm. You know, it's sort of like people are like, "Well, I'm just going to sell on Amazon and nothing else." Why? I mean, what if what if Amazon goes under? You know, which mm-hmm. won't happen. What if Amazon bans you? You know what I mean? What if, you know, the audience wants may, something different? Yeah, you may not get a million copies. If you sell a million copies on Amazon, you may only sell a few thousand on Barnes & Noble, but that's a few thousand you didn't have before. Hmm. So, I mean, I just don't see the, the point in trying to cut off anything, even though I kind of have, because I can't, I can't sustain working with, um, trying to upload the podcast to everything from daily motion, to rumble, to odyssey, to uh bit to all these different, well, you know, different video sites that have these different algorithms and different interfaces. And some of them can't, you know automate anything and you have to go through all this process to get all this stuff done you Mm -hmm. know because you know you know well because i think you use anchor don't you for your podcast yeah i do yeah so i use anchor too for mine and you know with anchor we both know and maybe the audience doesn't know this is when you put the podcast on anchor it shoots it out to all these like 10 different websites automatically if you do an update to it it updates to all the sites where you don't have to do anything except for You know, focus all your energy on just putting it on Anchor and they handle the rest. The syndication, basically. Mm -hmm. But there's no way to do that with YouTube, Rumble, BitShoot, Daily Motion, Vimeo, you know, all these other sites. Rumble, you have to do this stuff manually. And that's a full time job because you know how hard it is just to have a YouTube channel grow, let alone four other sites that most people have never heard of. And you have to
0: watch all these and their analytics and see where you can do better. Yeah crazy.
1: There's no aggregator. There's no syndication software out there that can shoot it out there because all the systems are different. All of them, you know, have different fields of input. Some of them flat out do not, you know, have scheduling features like YouTube, which is the big deal breaker for me with daily motion. And, uh, maybe it wasn't daily motion rumble. I know does, but I know BitShoot doesn't Odyssey. I just don't, I'm not getting into why I don't like Odyssey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's good. Mm-hmm. That's drama. Um, which we don't want to talk about on the show. We can talk about that all fair if you want, but I don't like odyssey and I, um, am not, you know, basically I'm not going to work with a site that, that does not give me the ability to make things as simple as possible because, you know, your show is all about productivity, you know, mm-hmm. and the way to be productive is to organize everything and make it as automated as possible
0: i was just talking to a guest yesterday about productivity he's like keeping stuff simple is the best way about going about it once it gets complex you're going way out of line and it's just gonna hurt you
1: yeah because i mean if you focus on you gotta focus on what works mm-hmm. and the thing that helped me a lot with uh, this the decision to get rid of rumble and BitChute and daily motion on all of them and Instagram. I'm not going to post it over there either, well, I might cause Instagram is actually stable It's because number one, the sites are unstable. Mm-hmm. You don't know when they're going to go out. I got burned so bad when, um, I was doing live streams on a site called stream me. I don't know if you ever heard of that. It's dead now.
0: Have, but...
1: And oh, it wow. was the site that had just exploded. And you know, everyone that went over there was like a, like a gold rush, basically. Mm-hmm. and some drama popped up with some creator who was just, you know, a bad person and still is a bad person. We're not once again drama, not going to get into it. Mm-hmm. But he basically had the entire site go down and it never came back. And you lost everything you worked for on it. Oh. And I lost everything I worked for and had the same thing happen with another alt what they call alt tech site called Vidme, which they all of a sudden decided to close up shop without telling anybody anything. So they just went kaboom and that was it. You know all your hard work was gone from there with no warning, no you know apology, no nothing. Mm-hmm. So that was gone, and you know there there's just so many websites that they start and the people just don't know what they're doing or they get over the head or they just get ideologically screwed up one way or another, where it's just you know it does I'm not gonna go into the political part of that, but you you get what I mean. people get screwed up one way or another where the website becomes unsustainable and then it just collapses and that's why I'm not really a big fan of alt tech because it's just unstable. You know, like Gab was supposed remember Gab, I don't know if you know Gab. Um I don't think it's free speech Twitter alternative. There was they ended up basically being a conservative hug box, which I'm not against conservatives. Once again, no politics. Mm-hmm. But it became a conservative hug box where the owner would basically ban anybody that he disagreed with politically or morally. Mm-hmm. So what are they bringing to the table that Twitter doesn't? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're bringing me an inferior product that has the same problem as the big product. Exactly. So the there's big no reason is to use it. To and then the site ends up collapsing. So that's, that's the, that's, I know, I don't know how we got this far off topic, but that that's the point is you need to more or less when you when it comes since this is about productivity, we can bring this back to that. You need to invest in what works and, you know, you can have your moral stance against YouTube and think that they're run by terrible people with terrible ideas, terrible ideologies, whatever you want to think, but YouTube works. Mm-hmm. You know, if you went to a random person on the street right now and said, Hey, I have a great podcast, uh, talk about productivity. If you listen to it, you can organize your entire life. A lot less stress, a lot less, you know, get more done. You know, it'll change your life. And they're like, okay, well, where can I sit? it? And you say, it's on BitChute, and they'll look at you like you're crazy. Mm-hmm. You're like, Because uh... most people have never heard of BitChute. No. No normal people. You know what I mean?
0: And people don't want to go out of their way to go find it. Yeah. When you have YouTube where it's installed on literally every device.
1: Yeah. I mean... Yeah, these sites have merit and I get it. You know, I, I want competition and I want people to succeed in their ventures. But at this point, I really don't think it's possible to, you know, create a site that could beat YouTube. You mm-hmm. know,
0: YouTube isn't even a profitable profitable site. It's just Google has no the market share. No video site is. No yeah. video
1: site is. You can't because there's no way to scale it.
0: Mm hmm. Storage is expensive. You you
1: have to, you always need more storage and you're not going to bring in enough money to pay for said storage.
0: Mm -hmm. And you have to pay the people that are making the site even work.
1: Yeah. It's not, it's not a profitable venture. It wasn't for the original creators of YouTube because, you know, they sold out to Google for whatever amount they gave. I think it was 1.6 billion or something, but you know, they sold out to YouTube. I mean, to Google. Who I think originally, and don't quote me on this, they had something called Google video that wasn't as successful and then Google video and YouTube merged just to be YouTube. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, cause I've been around since 2008 and YouTube started in I think 2005, so I was not at the very beginning, but I was pretty close to the early stages and YouTube for the people out there, I'm not trying to be mean or rude or anything. I'm just, I'm just going to explain something to your audience really quick. Mm -hmm. For all the people that complain about YouTube being censor happy and just, you know, band, happy and shadow band, happy and all of that. You people are so privileged right now to not have lived through what it was like back in 2008 on YouTube, where no matter, you could have your own original song that you wrote uh, in your own house with your microphone. That sounds nothing like any other song. And all of a sudden you would get a copyright strike. No warning, no second chance, no appeal, no nothing from Warner music group. Oh, wow. There was no appeal process. There was no, Hey, you're wrong. That's my song. They would just hit you and that'll be it. And And you know, you get three of those and you're dead and that's how it used to be back then. And then you had, you know, if you had anything that was remotely, if you talked about a Viacom product you know, like, which would be uh, who's Viacom, I guess, Nickelodeon, maybe comedy central, you know, people that, you know, they own all those different stations that aren't like uh, com- uh, cartoon network mm-hmm. um, and stuff, you know, the stuff that Turner owns. I think he owns cartoon network. Anyway, uh, point is, if you talked about Viacom shows, you could get banned because Viacom sued YouTube for people putting up full episodes of their stuff. Yeah, there was no appeals process. There was no, nobody made money. No one was a partner either. I mean, like if you were a partner, you could have a million subs and still not become a YouTube partner back then. Oh, really? That's... Yeah. They <laughs> had to hand select you. I remember, I don't know if you got no, uh, Mr. Repsy which, you know, he's just a, an example. That I thought of the top of my head back in the day. I remember him being pretty big cause he was having that feud with Onision for a while. And um, probably 10 years ago, and this is before anybody could become a partner. And I remember hearing him talking about, you know, like he had over a hundred thousand subscribers, but they wouldn't, you know, monetize him or give him, you know, in the partner program, I don't think they opened up the partner program to everyone until 2012 where anybody could join, but it used to be very, very, very picky. Like there was like. You know so like on Twitter how you can't get a verified check marker unless just, you know, the Holy Ghost finds your profile? Mm-hmm. That's what it was like on pro, on YouTube with the partner program. Nobody made money.
0: And th- unless at that you're point... with
1: those multi-channel networks, which once again, just like traditional publishing and record deals, they screw you.
0: Uh-huh. All right.
1: Well, I yeah, that, think that's
0: why they exist. So I think this is where a good spot to end it. Um,
1: is there anything else you want to add? just check out terror tracks if you want to you know hear how to re- uh write books or listen to me review or you afraid of the dark episodes that's it there you go go check it out
0: that information was awesome moving on we're gonna mix the dough with a quote master has failed more times than the beginner has even tried. Stefan McCraney. It's very hard looking at failure just about every time. What I tell myself is that every successful person mentions that they failed tons and it kind of makes it easier to accept failure because I fail, you fail, we all make failures and it's something we have to accept. I kind of struggle with trying to get things right the first time, which I think is an unhealthy mindset because... Then you avoid failures or you just get a more negative mindset when you do fail because this wasn't perfect. This wasn't good enough. So that is one of my things that I need to work on. Now, with that in mind, I don't recommend trying to fail either because, I mean, that's obviously going to lead to failure. And you're not really going to be like, yeah, I failed. But you should be like, yeah, I failed. That was a weird way to put it, but it's true. Keep moving forward. Um, we also all have our own definition of success. So, failure is going to look different from one person to the next. And some people be, will be like, that's not failure. And you'll be like, yeah, it is. So, that's just a factor as well. Um, too long to listen, make mistakes, live a little, and on to the next segment. We're going to next dog All right, so this is for a 24-hour VR challenge. I haven't officially decided if I plan on doing this yet, but it is a challenge I am thinking I'm going to do. As of right now, I'm thinking of doing it on July 22nd to 23rd. i would do it around 6 or 7 after I eat dinner on the 22nd, and then just go in for a whole 24 hours. And I'd plan on sleeping with the VR headset on. Um, i just... I don't know, make my own room or something. I just think it would be a cool challenge. Um, just kind of depends if I'll do it on that date, if my work goes ahead and has the approval for the, the 23rd being off. So we'll see. I don't really know why I want to try this challenge. I just do. I'm like, huh, eh, that sounds interesting. Let's do it. Um, for the video footage, like camera, I'm thinking I'll do a time lapse because I don't have a webcam and... I can't do video footage because that would be too much storage as well as it's not good for DSLRs to have their sensor open for 24 hours. So that's why I'm thinking I'll go with the time lapse because you get the idea without the storage hassle, without it being so bad for the camera. I mean, it's still not great for the camera, but it's relatively okay. And it would look cool. Um, And then I'll just do a. 24-hour screen recording for the VR footage. I should have enough storage for that. I'll just have to delete it afterwards. And after that, I will edit a video with my thoughts on it, and I think it would be a fun video. Um, And I will not be live streaming because I'll be texting people, uh, look at my email. There's just a lot of stuff that's confidential, and I don't want to really live stream that, you know? So for privacy reasons, it's not being live streamed. Anyways, on to the last piece of dough. All right, the guest in this episode is Jack Pierce from the Terror Tracks podcast. There'll be links in the description. Go check him out. My challenge for July is reading a little bit every day. And if you have any ideas for the podcast, just get a hold of me and we can probably talk about them. And if you'd like to be a guest, there'll be a sign-up sheet in the description. As well, if you're wondering what Linguini's dough is, this is where we start with the base piece of dough and you can really bake any type of, you can bake a lot of stuff with dough. And we build from that, we can talk about self-improvement, business, finances, and a lot of the time it's productivity. So that's usually where I try to bake it at, just kind of depends on the episode. The voice actor in this video is user slash Lendry from Reddit spelled L-E-N-D-R-Y. Go check him out if you want a reliable voice actor. And the songs in this are Slug Love 87, Go On Going, Sharana Goes, Digital Memories, and Witness, all from the YouTube library. Anyways, thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next piece of dough.